Listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast, where we explore traditional tabletop and live action role playing games through the lens of horror. A special thank you to our Patreons for helping make this podcast possible. Settle in, Thin Bloods, grab a drink in your favorite set of dice, and let the darkness consume you. Thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. My name is Mark, and I am very excited because we have a very special guest for this podcast. Michelle Belanger is a prolific author, celebrated occult expert, performer, paranormal investigator, and energy work mentor. Michelle has used to run uh, Vampire the Masquerade LARPs for Gen Con and Origins in the 90s and have published over 30 titles on the subject of vampires, demonology, energy work, and especially fiction, such as the Novels of the Shadow Side series, which is very good. They're the founder of House Capiru, a nonprofit organization made up by diverse voices dedicated to discussing and teaching energy work, spirituality, psychic development, and personal growth. You may recognize Michelle Belanger from appearing on A&E's Paranormal State or Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Michelle is currently teaching personal empowerment and psychic development classes, which you can find on their website, michellebelanger.com or on patreon.com slash haunted. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. I, um, this is this is an exciting interview that we're going to be having, and um, I you you have a very dynamic background. I get bored easily, <laughs> and and if I washed my hands as often as I wrote books, people would probably know to medicate me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's 2020, so we all kind of have that you know dishwasher chapped hands thing going on. That's that's true. That joke that joke doesn't really hold water anymore in the age of COVID. hopefully i mean it should wash your hands folks yeah seriously okay so let's let's start off with with something that that everybody kind of listens to us for and that's tabletop rpg um what was your first introduction to ttrpg was it you know what game line kind of how did you get in into tabletop i have got an epic and maybe unbelievable story um but in fourth grade uh, my public school system, uh, the folks who ran the gifted class, decided that since Dungeons and Dragons very effortlessly married math and creativity, they would introduce a whole bunch of little 10-year-olds to playing D&D. That's amazing. So we played D&D as like, part of our regular public school stuff. My first game master was Kevin Dries. Uh, mainly because he beat me out for, uh, like, I think we played rock, paper, scissors for it, which is uh, a <laughs> fun nod to, like, Vampire the Masquerade LARPing many, many years later. Uh, uh, but from that point, I was hooked. Uh, and that was uh, whatever year the hostages in Iran were just, were, were still being held. So, like, the very tail end of the Carter presidency. So, whenever that was. So that was during the, that was during the days when D and D was still kind of considered evil by quite some amount of people. That's why I say it's maybe an unbelievable story because I grew up in Ohio. Uh, it was yeah. the Highland school system, you know, small town. But 
my I, I happened to go that public school was really amazing. Like I, I hit the sweet spot where like almost all of the teachers, I think, were just hippies. And they were super forward thinking and super creative. Totally. Uh, and like we just were encouraged to to make stories and to create and to like do whatever really appealed to us. And I, I got a fantastic education, which just years later when I went back, um, just my creative writing teacher uh, was like, yeah, you know, you, you can't donate your books to our library now because they like they're really strict with like topics. But back when I was 10, like I was checking out books on ESP and parapsychology. Uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> they had Sybil Leak on the shelves. Oh, so wow. it, it was a completely different world. At the same time, like as the satanic panic is just starting to like really start to percolate. Probably around middle school, high school, um, that was around the time that Satanic Panic really hit um, in like a second wave down in Florida. So, you know, there was a lot of concern for these types of games um, and kind of what the, the more nerdier kids were doing. And then it just kind of got even more um, kind of intense after Columbine. So it's like you had this kind of second wave of satanic panic mixed with, you know, Columbine fear of, of gothic kids, all of that kind of percolating to a perfect storm. I can only imagine earlier in Ohio, um, that kind of alternative type of education. Was that, was that common or were you, did you go to like a, a special kind of school? It was a public school. It cool. was unusual, unique, and just like the perfect place for me to be and to thrive. And I don't know why it came together exactly like that at that time, because it was very atypical. Yeah. Um, it, it stopped being as good because so, so they would regularly spit out um, like National Merit Scholars and like, you know, top of their class every mm -hmm. every freaking year, uh, which, of course, meant that like all of the like yuppies wanted their kids to go to the school to get the same kind of stuff, which then meant that they started to regulate what the school was allowed to do and to teach. And suddenly, surprise, surprise, they were just they weren't churning out free thinkers and, and brilliant creators. They were just sort of, you know, the same old, same old. Um, yeah. Cindy Summers, who is a writer for some of the early Vampire the Masquerade stuff, uh, also went to that school. She was a year or two ahead of me. That's really interesting. Same school. Yeah. Wow. And, and of course, the, the, the ability to like tell stories and, and have these immersive yeah. stories that are sort of like co-creation, like that had me hooked from, from day one. You know, my, my high school had a, um, there was two classes. One was a, a kind of a typical acting class um, where they had plays. And then there was this other class, which was all improv, which I took. And it was that that it was really pushing the boundaries of storytelling. Um, yes, anding, everybody kind of having these collaborative storytelling moments. So by the time I reached, you know, an old enough age to really get into tabletop and, and vampire, especially it, that I was, I was almost primed for it. Yeah. I improv is really what hooked me for live action LARPing. Uh, like yeah. like the, the live action role play is such uh, like, I don't know, theater on steroids where you just sort of like create a character and run. And anyway, but I'm jumping well ahead of uh, the sort of chronological process of my my gaming geekdom. So, OK, so let's talk about let's talk about vampire, because, you know, 
you, you, you had, you cut your teeth, so to speak, no pun intended <laughs> on Dungeons and Dragons. And then at like, at what point in your life did Vampire the Masquerade sink its fangs into you? So I remember very distinctly in 1991 being at a Walden Books in the mall. So that's how old this is. Uh, my freshman year of college. And it's that was when I was uh, starting to like kind of poke around with psychic vampirism and magic and the occult from a, a nonfiction perspective and like really try to understand like what my beliefs were, what my practices were, and if there was anybody else out there who was as weird as me. Uh, so I go to Walden Books and I'm looking in the occult section and I turn a corner to an end cap and I see this lovely big hardback book that says vampire it's got a rose on it it's got like this <laughs> cool green uh marble look like it is everything that speaks to my dark goth little heart and i pick it up and i don't realize it's a role-playing book until like, you know, like the first page or two and i'm just like i was so like simultaneously like so disappointed and yet like vaguely intrigued but like i that that first introduction, I was just like, oh, but this isn't, isn't what I'm looking for. So I was so mad at it that I refused to have anything to do with it um, until a little bit later that year, uh, my, my gaming group, who I, who I face planted into at my Jesuit college, John Carroll, um, somebody, what, what, what were we playing? We were playing Spelljammers, I think. Uh, and then somebody was like, hey, I've got this new thing. Uh, and they pull out, you know, the green marble book. And I'm like, oh that thing <laughs> but i gave it a chance and and so so what hooked me with vampire the masquerade uh one of my big complaints with D, &D uh and, and the kind of D, D adjacent gaming style was like you're pretty pretty much you're suiting up to go do a dungeon crawl kill things and although you are creating characters and there, there's a lot of rich storytelling that goes on there Vampire the Masquerade was the first place where you weren't sort of shoehorned into um, an alignment. Yeah. So much as you had your nature and your demeanor. And that that's actually what grabbed me was it in a lot of ways I felt allowed for these much more nuanced characters who were neither good nor evil, but would make choices based on kind of who they were and what their motivations were. Mm. Uh, the other thing that got me was reframing the dungeon master as a storyteller uh, and making very clear that the golden rule is that the rules don't matter if the storyteller wants to bend them for the sake of the story. Uh, and, and that flexibility, uh, that really, I don't know, the kinds of stories that we made around the gaming table with our little black dice with the red letters and the roses on them, uh, we just... I can't recreate or capture those. Like, it's the days before we could stream these games and podcast these games, and if I have one regret, it is that I had all of those experiences at a time when they are like Tibetan sand mandalas. Yeah. They exist in memory only, and there's mm. no no recapturing them beyond the moment in which they were created. Yeah, they're 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 kind of meant to be swept away after you know you 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 complete the experience, and you're you're left with these kind of little tickling of memories because I I'm thinking back at all the times that I've played, um, 
in the traditional way years ago when I was younger and discovering the game, very excited about it. Um, you know, whether it be in a cafe or in a school gymnasium or at somebody's house or in a cemetery, wherever, um, they're like these little touchstones that you kind of think back towards and, and there's really no way to replicate that anymore. And I, I hope that there are kids that are discovering this in the same way, or at least playing this in a similar way. Obviously this year, 2020 makes things a little more difficult, but, but you know, before the apocalypse, <laughs> I hope there's at least some kids or some, some young people discovering this game and playing it in that kind of esoteric mysterious way as well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm completely tripping down memory lane. Right. It, it kind of, it, it's almost like you open up a door and it, it takes you all the way back to the timeline. But I, I want to, um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about something and, and let's just fast forward a little bit. And I apologize if I bounce around, but um, you were involved in greatly involved and, and inspiring. So inspiringly. So in the New York city fetish occult and, and vampire club scene. Um, yep. I want to know about the influence from your perspective that Vampire the Masquerade and World of Darkness had on this scene, which has now been kind of mythologized and, you know, there are all sorts of stories and half-truths and um, movies based on this books written about it and know about this group of people in New York City doing interesting things with other interesting people. And you were there. I, I, I was there. Well, the, the first thing I will say is that... Um, there were definitely groups isolated um, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s onward, but it didn't. It, it it blossomed into this Gotham court, like this this fascinating, vibrant community, and it would not have done so without Vampire the Masquerade. And, mm. and as much as I know that there are people who kind of have revisionist history about it, like I was there. So like I still own the realms of the realms of fantasy magazine where Endless Night is advertised as a weekend long vampire LARP, uh, and you know I, I rewrote there. There's this um, set of rules called the, the the Black Veil, and the Black Veil is to the vampire community what uh, the Wiccan Reed is to many Wiccans and and some modern witches, uh, which is to say it is the set of ethical guidelines that's uh, a strong suggestion, you know, it's not like there's, you know, actual vampire justicars running around in the in the subculture mm-hmm. um, enforcing this stuff. That's completely impossible. Um, but the Black Veil started out. Anybody who's ever had a LARP group knows that like, you, like any gaming group, like you have sort of like your house rules. Uh, yeah. And so it's oh, there's that old Tom Hanks movie. Um, where, you know, he's playing a kid who gets, like, way in over his head with Dungeons and Dragons. It's pretty much, like, satanic panic, like, the logical conclusion of what they thought would happen if you were role-playing, that you'd have the one kid who had really bad mental boundaries and emotional boundaries who would just take it for real. Are you talking about Mazes and Monsters? Yes, totally. Yeah. So so I know on, on the surface... People are like, oh, so it was just like mazes and monsters. Like everybody who was in this scene out in New York were playing Vampire the Masquerade, and they just decided to be their characters. And and that's that's a, a huge oversimplification of what was going on. Yeah. So so what happened was you had a community that was starting to blossom, and and people who were 
uh, part of the kink scene and part of the goth mm-hmm. scene and part of different aspects of the musical scene. And many people who were identifying as occultists, as mm-hmm. witches, as vampires in, in a, a magical or occult sense. And Vampire the Masquerade gave them a social construct, something that they could engage in and talk to one another with and create stories and sort of like test out like is this person interested in this like it it gave a language it gave a structure and it gave an excuse to come together yeah and i know for myself um how that worked out was there would be the game and then there would be what happened afterward you know when you all go out to in ohio the denny's Um, Or if at the convention, like, you know, everybody just hangs around in one of the rooms that's open till four in the morning. Yeah, one of the free play rooms. Yeah. And and you know that you're no longer playing the game. You're not playing your characters anymore. But now you ask how much of you was in the character. Um, So language was borrowed. Structure was borrowed. Some of it, I think, to a degree that uh, I, I don't think served the community very well. Um, it's it's not the first time this happened. I think that a pretty good thesis could be put together on the influence of Dungeons and Dragons, especially wizards and magic, on a lot of the early pagans and Wiccans. Um, so think uh, Oberon Ravenheart Zell uh, and, and how much he pretty much styled himself after a a Gandalf-style, D&D-style wizard in, in the way he looks and in a lot of his aspects and sort of plays with that character. So so the things that we play with, the stories that we indulge in, um, are often splinters of our personalities or, or parts of ourselves that we're not quite ready to publicly admit to. So part of that was going on. Uh, and at, at the same time, there were all of these fascinating creative people kind of coming of age and learning what did they believe and who were they really. And uh, when when all of the mainstream structure of reality was taken away and you're just in the nightclub where it's just you and the other folks that you know are your tribe, who are you really? And who do you want to be? Um, so I, I mentioned that the Black Veil. I ended up um, writing that because the, the New York community had uh, a, a version of it, which was pretty obviously adopted from the traditions of the masquerade. I mean, like almost word for word. Yeah. Uh, and it was this, this hazy half step between it having been the house rules for the LARPs that were happening in the clubs that then sort of like elided into the house rules and values for the community that grew out of that and the community that was attracted to uh, what was was developing out there. Uh, The folks in their their vampire drag and the lifestylers and the blood fetishists and and everything else in between. Um, I I can tell you, because, God... Yeah, it's it's long enough ago now, and it was it was pre nine eleven. Like some places don't even exist. Uh, I remember being in Club True uh, for one of the events, 
And uh, among other things, and much to the distress of the club owners, um, because this was completely against health code, in uh, one of the lower rooms, uh, this performance art couple uh, did like this trance art performance, which involved piercing. Um, and then when she, the, the wife removed the piercing needles from her husband, she caught all of the blood in a bowl and then painted, uh, made a painting out of it. Um, and that got shut down pretty much as soon as the uh, folks who owned the bar found out that that was what was going on because health code violations. But I can only like, imagine, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but those things happened. Like I, I saw flesh pulls. Probably yeah. my favorite was um, there was a fellow who na- went by the name of Lord Xanatos, and he looked, honest to God, like like a tiny blade. Um, he was he was a small, <laughs> trim, uh, black fellow, and his father owned this like big building, um, and on the bottom floor there was like a dojo and a bunch of other things. Um, but it, it was an old warehouse, so the upper part of it had been turned into a club an underground club where you needed to know who was running it. It wasn't officially a club. Uh, so I guess basically a vampire rave. Uh, yeah. And it was called House Hidden Shadows. Uh, it was up in um, Harlem. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I I just remember walking home or walking back to uh, the... Uh, subway whichever subway i can't remember if it was a deaf train or whatever to, to get back to where we were staying in brooklyn and and we're just walking along the road and this place was so well known for the vampire lifestylers and everybody like who would party there like friday saturday sunday flesh pulls uh and and, and you know music and and anything you can possibly imagine um and it's it's like february it's a balmy february and there is a fellow who has stopped at a stoplight as we're walking away from this venue and his windows are down and in a kind of lost boys moment he just you know like grandpa like the one thing i always hate about santa carla he looks over at like the gaggle of us in our black and our onks and our leather and our lace and the velvet capes and i mean we're just dressed to the nines and you can hear him audibly go More damn vampires. That's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so, so the whole thing about that is you can't separate the art, the music, the literature, yeah. the acting, the performance art aspect, the mm-hmm. gaming part of it. Like, like it's all of a piece. Um, and it wouldn't have existed if even one of those pieces was removed. Uh, and... I, I don't know. Um, so many things came out of it. And I know many people, like, some people moved off into, you know, just doing gaming full time. And some people have great writing careers. And some folks are just, you know, musicians out of it. And, you know, some folks just have their regular corporate lives. And, you know, still, when the lights are low and they're feeling frisky, they they put on uh, the black and the leather and just go... I don't know that those clubs exist so much anymore. Certainly not now. Um, but, you know, just find the people that they can be themselves with. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm still in contact with a, with a lot of the, the folks. Uh, Facebook is good for that. It's about one of the only things that it's still good for. Um, we've, we've lost a lot of folks along the way, too. Uh, I mean, the most, the most uh, 
keenly felt um, and pretty much like the first to go kind of epically was Didrenin, mm-hmm. um, who who you'll hear his name, you know, breathed in in holy whispers on people's albums and, and poetry. Like he was a pretty fantastic person. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him um, on, on only one occasion. Um, but he was he was everything everybody says. You know, you, you're talking about the Black Veil. Um, and, you know, as a gaming company, all of the events that we're running, all of the games that I run, I, I you know, we all hand out um, consent forms. And it's really like, you know, hey, listen, we're, we're, we're dealing with horror and we're dealing with probably some themes that might be uncomfortable for some people. So here's a list of the themes that we're going to be working with. Um, if you're cool with it, awesome. If not, tell me what you don't like. And then there's a little questionnaire of, I want this, I don't want that. And this kind of makes me uncomfortable. So let's talk about it. And every time I hand it out, I'm kind of reminded of, you know, your guidelines that, that, that you revised. Um, and there's an interesting through line or an overlay of, of safety. And it sounds to me the way that you're describing the black veils is that their safety is kind of the big focus. That that really was was just making sure that everybody looked out for one another. Um, and I mean, I was rewriting it in the wake of Columbine. Yeah. Uh, and so, well, actually, no, ninety six. Columbine was in ninety nine. Yeah, yeah ninety nine. So, so yeah, no, that, that's 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 around. Like, there were things that were going on, but like, okay, so so following Columbine and the vampire murders. It, from, oh from yeah, with um, Florida. Yeah, Rod Farrell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um became really obvious that we needed stuff not only to kind of promote like ethical behavior within the community but also something that we could point to when people are like oh you're you're all like these the school shooters you're all like this you know vampire murderer it's all of you guys um because because at that that point i was getting calls from like the ricky lake show and other sketchy like talk shows that just wanted to capitalize on the sensationalism of like real vampires living in broad daylight drinking the blood of your children like you know, just nonsense <laughs> like that which it, it just it wasn't <laughs> like it just, <laughs> yeah it sorry was, sorry was, sorry folks unfortunately <laughs> it wasn't as exciting as as it really was five nerds in a room playing rolling some dice and playing vampire <laughs> or it was like real vampires who are all working on their PhDs, sitting around drinking way too much coffee <laughs> at 3 a.m. talking about Sartre. Uh, <laughs> which honestly was, was way more likely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but but it was it, it's just about and, and that's why it's like, you know, it's not enforceable, but it's also you know, just common sense be nice if you do something to someone do it with permission like consent is a huge part of it yeah i have conversations with people before you do things to them whatever Mm -hmm. those things are if you are all consenting adults then that's fine don't shove it in people's faces Uh, just sort of i don't know the, the, the rules that would help one get by in that time too you know you don't just like go running down the street declaring to everybody like hey i'm part of this weird community i do these things uh, so, so that's where discretion comes in because, mm-hmm. you know, you're, it, it's, it's human nature to judge a group based on the loudest individuals that yeah. you happen to encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so discretion was a big part of it of like, you know, 
do your thing, but but don't be obnoxious about it and don't try to shove it down other people's throats. Because if you give them a bad impression, they're going to look at everybody else the same way. There's also another aspect too that I've always considered, you know, whenever thinking about um, that particular scene, it's this kind of safe space and protection for individuals within, you know, the, um, the LGBT community and, you know, seeing some of the um, theatrics, you can't help but to think about ballroom, you know, and you can't help but to think that here is a very, diverse group of people that are all very, very close to one another, or at the very least protective of a community, which is something I think should resonate with, with every person. Oh, it was, it was a significant part and allure of the community at the time. Like there weren't a lot of places, um, you know, we didn't necessarily call people like think of people as trans, right? Uh, but there were a lot of trans folk. There were a lot of folk who identified differently and that was just a part of, of who they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, the, the spot on the Venn diagram where this community intersected with the, 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 the LGBTQIA folks and folks of, of different racial backgrounds and folks of different religious backgrounds uh, at a time where mainstream society didn't give us a place to be safe. Uh, and that sense of family uh, of, you know, in, in Vampire the Masquerade, you have your vampire clan. Uh, and the idea of the the whole masquerade is you all need to, like, hang together in the Camarilla because there's more people than there are vampires. And, you know, you, you are, you, you need to look out for one another. Um, even if you are what you think of as a monster. And, you know, growing up in that time period, our society told almost all of us that we were monsters because of who we were or who we were attracted to, how we liked to dress, the music we wanted to listen to, the kind of art that we created. Uh, And so we were all monsters together. Yeah, one happy family of monsters doing amazing things and being amazing people with each other, you know, and and with, with V5, the new edition of Vampire the Masquerade, you know, the big threat isn't necessarily the Sabbat. It is the Second Inquisition, which is essentially just, okay, humans found out about us and now they're hunting us uh, out in the open. And they've got, you know, unreasonable amount of budgets because governments are working with them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you're outnumbered. I want to talk about your experience with something that Probably some, probably a lot of people would would recognize you from, and that would be your work um, as a paranormal investigator in A and E's Paranormal State. Yep. So, I have seen. I, I ran into this show when it was on. I think it was flipping through the channels, and you know, A and E comes on. I wonder what's on. Probably something about revisionist history, or, or who knows what else. Maybe you know some kind of weird. Holocaust documentary, what, what is going to be on? And what is on is um, Michelle Belanger talking about um, how she performed this scrying to try to either communicate or gain messages from, from the other side. And I'm like, okay, now I got to watch the show. And they <laughs> showed you putting on the, you know, the face mask and you were kind of doing this like mental inward scrying, which I found really, really interesting. So uh, one thing I do want to ask is, is, 
what was it like <laughs> working on that show? Because it did have a little bit of like a reality TV show edge to it. Oh, it, it, it totally did in the, the first season particularly. So um, I actually began working with them um, behind the scenes for the first season as uh, basically their occult researcher lifeline. Cool. Uh, so, so like they're in the woods of Maine walking around trying to like, hunt down something that has allegedly killed the family's pets. Lorraine Warren is there in like her little like she's, she's walking around the woods in Maine like you know low sensible heels and a linen skirt and like so so three in the morning i get this call of like hey we think it's this and you know do you have anything do you have a book that refers to this and could it be like this that or the other you know when to go something anything and i i was basically bobby from supernatural but with like way less alcohol or none at all uh, and, a, and a way cooler jacket by the way <laughs> <laughs> I I have had that jacket since 1998, I think. Um, it is older than some of my friends. Anyway, damn fine, damn fine jacket. <laughs> yeah, much, no, it's it's it is, it is <laughs> really really. I, I I love that jacket. Like I I've babied it. Um, so it was second season that they realized that I was psychic. Um, I I didn't say that I was or wasn't. I mean, I'd written several books on psychic development at that point, but it's mm. it's really funny where, you know, you kind of get put into boxes and people think of you based on the label that you're introduced to them as. So I was the occult researcher, not the person who can walk around a house blindfolded and describe the walls and what the wife ate for dinner the day before. Um, so... They had brought me on to be a mentor to Elfie Music, uh, who had, um, Elfie is actually a Thelemite, although they yeah. present her as a Wiccan on the, on the show, because Wiccan was what everybody understood, thanks to Buffy. Um, but it's, she, for those, for those who, because it, it was pretty, if you kind of know. Yeah, you if could, you know, it's obvious. Yeah. Um, her, her father, James Music, was the person who had instructed her. Um, she lost her brother and her father in rapid succession, all the while suddenly being thrust as a bookish introvert into a hit television series that had like <laughs> 3.5 million viewers. Um, so by second season, she was struggling a little bit, and they yeah. thought bringing in a friend uh, would kind of like bring her out of her shell. Um, and, and so they, they grabbed me since she was already like... Uh, tapping me behind the scenes for stuff mm. and that episode um was chip coffee was the psychic and he picked up on some stuff with me and he was the one who proposed that we would go through the location separate from one another uh and then compare notes and that was fun um that's really interesting it's almost like a this this kind of scientific and Ill illuminism approach to that yeah, well, I, I have always, I never assume, and I guess this is why I hadn't, like, you know, screamed at them that I was psychic and do, could do this stuff, mm. is I don't assume necessarily that it is psychic. There's clearly something that I pick up on, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm never 100% sure that it's not just Sherlock Holmes level perception, um, which is where the blindfold came in. Um, for me, I, I was often self-editing with a lot of perceptions based on stuff that I thought, well, but there was a photo that I just saw that looked a lot like this little boy that I'm seeing in my head, so I'm just not going to talk about it. 
so so once we added the blindfold, then all of the the unintentional front loading and an accidental reading of physical cues in the location, at least visual ones, um, could be ruled out. Um, and, and let me kind of just dive into this process of like, what does the space feel to me? Like, how does it speak to me? And then before you knew it, five seasons had gone by. It, it, and it, it kind of, it's kind of immortal. It's in an immortal place in the, the paranormal investigator show story, right? There's been so many of them. You have the, the, the plumbers from New Jersey. You've got mm -hmm. the, the guys with the hair gel. You have, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then, and then you have, and then you have paranormal state, which to me feels more authentic just because it's authentic people with an authentic approach it, from an audience perspective. I don't well, know well, behind the scenes if it was the same kind of way. What what I can say from behind the scenes is, and I think that it is why it was successful, is this was legitimately just a nerdy bunch of friends at a college yeah. who hung out with one another and talked about ghosts and weird shit. And they had started running um, like a little college-based uh, paranormal convention called UNIVCON. Mm. And UNIVCON is actually how the network learned about the Paranormal Research Society because it was one of the only big paranormal conventions that was going on. And since they had like the, you know, all of State College kind of at their disposal as their convention center, uh, it got pretty big. So you, you had all of these of the uh, paranormal at the time, like my, my T-shirt from when I was a, a headliner in 2006. Which is which is how I got connected to them at all. It has like Hans Holzer on there. It's got the plumber guys on there. It's <laughs> it's just like a who's who in like ghost hunting and weirdness. Um, and that was that was where they got head hunted. And and the thing is, is you you couldn't fabricate the chemistry that they had. Yeah. Yeah, they they knew they knew each other, and and they had a there was a there's like a closeness and a frankness with each other that translated well on screen. Because truth be told, Michelle, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of paranormal investigator shows because it seems all a lot of it seems very put on a lot of pre or a lot of like production uh -huh. chicanery. You know what I mean? Like so, someone so in the other room knocking and all of that stuff. Yeah. One, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of most of them either. Um, two, I, I really can't bring myself to watch most of them. Um, and, and three, what I will tell anybody and everybody is if your bullshit meter is going off, trust it. <laughs> Without like throwing anybody under the bus. Like if, if you're like, eh. Now that being said, I've, I've been present physically for a couple of things that like as it goes down, I'm like, if I were watching this, I wouldn't believe that it just happened. Like, like there are occasionally things where it's like, all right, that's weirder than I even know what, like, that just happened. Okay, sure. Nobody's going to believe we didn't just fake that, but okay. It, it's, it gives you a feeling of, uh, of high strangeness. Yes. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a point where, like, you're, the, the human brain, it's, oh, it's, it's, um, it's, they nailed it with Mage the Ascension, really. Like, like <laughs> it just it gets so weird that you're like, nope, nope. Yeah, the, the paradox. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, this is impossible. No way. Have you seen um Have you seen Hellier? 
I have. And holy, yes, I love it. I really hope that the the powers that be in Hollywood and everywhere else take notice uh, and hopefully don't rip them off in a bad way, which is much more likely, um, honestly. It's a, it's a very predatory, uh, all of it's very predatory. But Hellier is kick-ass and, and really captures what it's actually like. That's the thing that I liked the most about it is the the reason that some of the paranormal shows feel overproduced is that the producers and the directors as a general rule a don't believe in this shit like at all um and don't expect it to be real are a little astounded when you point out that there actually are real things and so faking this thing over here is just disingenuous and you shouldn't do it like to them it's all fake so so what does it matter so even if you've got a good group of people uh who are genuine about it and then and then they edit out all the great conversations because there isn't a jump scare around the corner but it's the conversations and the quest and hellier shows that yeah it puts the it it gives you the goosebumps in the back of your neck because they're making connections you know and talking about those connections and you go holy crap i didn't think about that and that is where the interesting stuff is and it's funny too because you're thinking like how many situations are there in the most ridiculous um kind of event where you have a, a bunch of paranormal investigators and there is crazy stuff happening all over the place but there's you know an executive producer or somebody maybe you know uh, someone who who's kind of in charge of that kind of stuff deciding to well let's throw the can down the stairs and you're like wait 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 no but look it's not blood on the walls but it's def this is something that's more grounded and something that's more believable yeah i know that we're 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 getting close and i i, I want to be mindful of your time but this is a really good conversation oh, I'm, it, I'm totally okay with running over because this is a great conversation you have so many good questions and and there's so much to talk about Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on again. And this is this is a good conversation. Um, one thing I, I do want to talk to you about is your energy work. Um, you know, you were you were talking about how you didn't, you know, exactly tell the producers of of that show that that you were psychic or that you had any kind of psychic work um, that you've been doing. But at this point, you have already published. Um, you know, quite a few books on it, most notably and, and often plagiarized the the Psychic Vampire Codex. Yep. Basically, one of the things that I want to understand and, and I've always wondered is how do you or how did you go about understanding that A, you know, this kind of thing exists and B, that you can um, that you can develop this this skill or this talent or, or this gift and, and C, that you could teach it to other people. First, I was really lucky in like the time and the place that that I grew up. Um, I grew up in a family where, on one hand, there were psychic abilities and it was okay to talk about stuff like that. Um, and also, like my great aunt lived with us and she had been studying to be a psychiatrist, and so she brought this grounded psychology, um, and it encouraged. Basically, we were encouraged to have experiences, analyze those experiences, explore what it could be from a psychological scientific perspective. And when you'd exhausted those possibilities, 
look at what was left and go, okay, here's something that, that is unknown. What do I know about it based on my experiences? And, and that is what I grew up with. <clears throat> and the only wrinkle was uh, I wasn't only like, you know, I pick up things from, from dead people or I sometimes have dreams that come true. There was this aspect of, of energy work, of like this sense that I could connect to other people's energy, that I could affect it, which let me tell you, like now on the other side of like Reiki being popularized and Qigong and everything seems mm. like a very, very simple thing. But in the 70s and the 80s, that especially in, in, in the middle of Ohio, like that was unheard of. Uh, so I did what I was I was brought up to do, which was experience it and then analyze it and then read as widely as I could to figure out, like, are there other cultures <clears throat> that talk about this? Are there other people who have similar experiences? Um, you know, it led me to reading the works of like Han Hans Holzer and Colin Wilson and Harry Price, um, all those fucking Time Life books about uh, ESP and parapsychology, reading up about the Rhine Institute, um, from all of that to like the Bhagavad Gita uh, and, you know, Taoist wizardry, like everything I could devour, I did. And um, it wasn't until 1990, 1991 that I ran across Dion Fortune's Psychic Self-Defense. Oh, I love that uh, book. And, yeah, well, and, and for me, that was a formative book because that was the first place I ran across the idea of a psychic vampire. I had been calling myself a vampire for, for years at this point because it wasn't, I mean, there, there was no other word for what it felt like I was doing because it did seem to be connected to human vital force. Um, and it wasn't just because I was a goth and it wasn't just because I'd been reading Edgar Allan Poe since I was a kid and like really <laughs> into horror and everything. Like, it was very clearly, here are folkloric vampires, here are fictional vampires, and here is something that is going on with me that, for lack of a better term, seems to kind of fall adjacent to this. Um, so, so I read Dion Fortune's Psychic Self-Defense, and I, I have an aha moment as she's describing <clears throat> the person who was preying on her. Um, and, and the only part that I didn't like was for Dion Fortune, it was only ever something negative that there was being done by evil people uh, to prey on people uh, w without their permission. And I'm like, but but I've only ever like, like, OK, I, I can't say it only ever uh, because I certainly would um, uh, not necessarily tell schoolmates in middle school what I was doing, but sort of like in the the theory of science like hey if i give you a back rub like you know tell me how you feel afterwards was sort of my way of of playing around with like okay if i do it and i'm actively taking energy how do they feel versus if i do a back rub and i'm not actively taking energy is that different yeah like so kind again, of looking at the differences between those two and trying to find an anomaly yeah, well, and, and trying not to front load people, because again, with, with Great Aunt Rita, I had uh, a, a lot of understanding of how psychosomatism worked, how people could like think themselves into symptoms, yeah, um, into experiencing stuff, how they could be led into having experiences. Uh, so, so psychic self-defense, I find the word psychic vampire and astral vampire, and I go, okay, so this is... This is a thing. Let me read further. Um, so I found um, the flying rolls of the Golden Dawn. And then, and then I found that 
Bram Stoker had some connections with the Golden Dawn. Yes. And that there's this weird, interesting, like, it's the same thing that was going on with the vampire community in the 90s. You've got this mix of people who are creating fiction and telling stories, but people who are also at the same time studying real stuff, having experiences, using the fiction in some cases to contextualize their actual experiences. So like digging deeper and finding that there's probable entanglement with the idea of a living psychic vampire and Stoker's relation with the actress Sir Henry Irving, who inspires his Dracula. Uh, like, like it, it blew my mind to realize that all of this has happened before and all of it will happen again, to borrow a, a phrase from a, a TV show, that it's always all of the above at once, that there's, you can't separate the fiction and the folklore and the real experience, because from the real experience, that's where the fiction and the folklore comes from. And I realize I'm getting totally like off off topic, but it's significant for my worldview in, in realizing that the stories we tell, the games that we play, the characters we adopt, all of them are acts of magic that we use consciously or otherwise to better understand and express who we are, how we relate to the world around us, and, and to understand the context of our lives. Uh, and, and sort of that, that all came together for me. Um, and it's like the, the early 90s. That's when I started publishing um, Shadow Dance which many moons later became a podcast, uh, but started off as a gothic literary magazine. Um, it's where the International Society of Vampires started, which was just a formalization of the, uh, the pen pal network that happened behind the scenes for Shadow Dance, which was on the surface just poetry and fiction, but was sort of at that time that the vampire community was starting to come together. And not just the vampires, witches, and the occultists and the pagans and pretty much like the weird people of every stripe. And, you know, we didn't have the internet quite at that point. So we were like writing pen and paper and doing all these zines yeah. to communicate what we were experiencing and just kind of like to shout out into the darkness to go, is there anybody else like me? That's, that's so pre internet and so pre social media. And there's a, it's interesting because there's there is a culture of of like writing letters and and in especially with with f folks that kind of paint themselves in the aesthetic of gothic, right? The amount of individuals that will kind of improve their handwriting so that they can make aesthetically pleasing letters while at the same time kind of putting that message in a bottle and hoping to get an answer back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, I've tried to, to to write with an actual inkwell and a quill. I was that goth. It's yeah. just easier to use a gel pen. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy, and you don't you don't have accidents like spilling your ink all over the carpet. Yeah. It also it's it's kind of almost like um, what is it the the theater des vampiros the vampires pretending to be humans pretending to be vampires. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know this. You can't know about 
the Psychic Vampire Codex and and all of your work without running into um, House Caperu. And I'm sorry if I am pronouncing that wrong because I've only read it and I've never actually heard it said out loud. I don't think. I pronounce it Keperu, but it's an ancient language and who knows? Um, it's The name is derived from... There's a creation story on the walls of the Temple of Edfu, and it is a play on the word to become. Mm-hmm. So basically, Keperi, Keper, Keperu, Keperkui, and Keper, and Keper, Keperum, Septepi, I became, and the becoming became, and like everything became through the becoming, and it, becoming, metamorphosis, transformation is... Anyway, I read that in a Lucy Lamy book, and I was like, I, I, I love everything about what that says about what yeah. our experiences are and and so has keperu <clears throat> like kangaroo <laughs> keperu kangaroo i like it yeah. okay that helps i think i was calling it keperu at one point um but if anybody doesn't know about house keperu it's as i understand it an initiatory and educational organization correct yes yeah it started off um as a vampire house um but well, actually, no, I can't say that. So, so it became formalized as a vampire house, uh, as as part of that '90s community. Uh, but it it had existed prior to that without a name, and at that point, it was much more like what it has become again, which is uh, a a dynamic group of very diverse people from many different backgrounds who come together and have energy work um, and, and reincarnation as, as sort of their touchstone, uh, touchstone points. And then everything else is, is dialogue, is learning from one another, is trying to become our, our most authentic selves. There's a lot of shadow work, energy work, and, and like psychic development are a signif- significant part of it. But in a lot of ways, it's a mystery school. So are you finding that in this age of, of COVID, um, where everybody is either self-quarantined or, or social distancing and everything else is, are you finding more or less activity among members or are you finding it to be something that's kind of provided a, a struggle or, or, um, I guess a barrier? It, it's complicated because we really prefer in person um Mm. we are a very in-person group and to the point where like with people who apply for membership although we do have some long distance members like we warn them uh, ahead of time that like we prefer to be able to meet a person um, in the flesh uh and kind of get you know the measure of them and we you know we do rituals on uh, a loose pagan wheel of the year so like typically everybody would come together eight times a year minimum and with COVID, um, we've been doing everything long distance. So, so it's been a mixed bag. On one hand, um, it has allowed a number of us to in, enrich our practice in terms of the idea of an astral temple, uh, long distance work, meeting in dreams, um, dreamwalking, things like that. Uh, and on the other hand, for those who are not savvy with Discord uh, or, or other like social media ways of connecting, um, it's been very isolating. So we yeah. have, you know, I'd say probably 70, 30, like 70% of, of the house has taken to all of these new ways of connecting and new ways of understanding how we can connect. Um, working 
our, our muscles to do long distance work and see how effective that can be. And then uh, the 30% that just are not good at connecting online, just not good, are, are languishing a little bit. One of the um, backgrounds that I have, my family is very much um, filled with Masons. There are men, uh, grandparents, you know, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, uncles that are all kind of part of this organization. I myself have never joined it. Um, but one of the struggles that I do that I do see, especially with older members, is that there is that disconnect and the, you know, uh, inability to overcome technology becomes an issue. Um, and even just kind of coming together as a group of people is extremely important right now. Um, everyone, everybody feels isolated and everybody feels like they need to kind of take some of that positive energy from, you know, a friend or a loved one or a family member, someone that they're not living with just so that they can feel alive. Um, so it's really, really cool that, that you guys are really trying to find a way to stay connected. Um, and I'm sorry to hear about the 30% that's struggling. Yeah, well, and, and Discord has honestly been fantastic. I, I learned of Discord through my um, MMORPG gaming group, and uh, I, I love it as a platform. So mm -hmm. we've, we've got a, a, an outer circle forum for HK, and I started... Uh, doing this connection ritual, which is really just a little visualization like every Saturday of connect and like reach out to one another and like remind ourselves that there are people who care. I mean, it's it's just like a little, you know, I'm a light in the darkness, you're a light in the darkness. Let's hold up our lights and yeah. try to get through it. And like the, the first couple of times it was just I guess what I have to say is, like, I'm I'm pagan clergy, and I've been doing a lot more ministering than I really have, <laughs> have, have realized. Yeah. I, I've, but, I mean, it's a really difficult time. Like, people really are struggling. And there are folks who, you know, due to health reasons, are still self-isolating. I'm one of them. Yeah, same. Uh, and, and so this is, this is the lifeline that we've got. We've got to learn how to, look, how, how to work with it. Do you have do you have individuals in your life that can kind of minister to you or or at the very least make you feel like that because it's a lot of pressure um to kind of hold like a, a larger I, I don't know if I'm mixing metaphors here but you know uh, holding a larger light that everybody can say okay cool I can I can hold up my little flashlight um while this giant torch is is <laughs> for the community and that giant torch at a certain point it gets it gets tiring. So do you at least have people in your life or in your, in your group, in your circle that are able to kind of, I guess, return the favor? Yeah. One of the things that I like about the group that we have in house Kepru is it's not like, uh, it's not like a guru thing of like, you know, I'm yeah. Lord high Pumbaa and everybody <laughs> just like following around and bowing at my feet. It's. So you're uh, not wearing it, white robes often in other words. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, more about co-creating actually yeah. in the past uh, couple of years we sort of like we, we'd had a little bit of a, a hierarchical structure just because by dint of trying to create a structure for anything and mm -hmm. we sort of just broke it again because it was getting too too calcified and getting in the way of the fact that everybody learns from everybody else and everybody supports everybody else uh, so i have uh, the the folks in House Kepru are incredibly supportive, and everybody 
everybody checks in on everybody else and they make sure to check in on me um, within the system. And I mean, I, I invented it. I, I wrote it. I've written almost all of the vow. Like I, I wrote all the vows and, and pretty much everything for it for, for third degree in our system. Um, the vow that you, that you take your, your oaths. Um, the main part of that is about self care, because if you as a leader, uh, third degree is basically our clergy. Mm. Um, as a leader, leader, if you are not taking care of yourself and you you crumble, then everybody who is relying on you crumbles. And so like having that stated as part of your your inner work, like your magic and your responsibility to your path is to also take care of yourself so that you can fulfill your duties. So having that written into it, like on one hand, I, I make a point of making sure that like, nope. This is not a good week for me to do this. Will somebody else step forward and do it? Or, um, and, and also that gives everybody else permission to check me, to say, hey, you know, you seem a little, a little off this week. Taking care of yourself, and you know, not to be all, all, all smoopy about it, but honestly, if I didn't have my wife, Illyria, she, she really helps keep me. I don't know. Her support counts for an awful lot. That's a beautiful thing. Having the support from from your wife, from your loved one, and it, having someone in the house with you, being there to be like, are you okay? Okay, no? Okay, stand up. We're going to be fine. Let's do this. Or, hey, listen, talk to me. What, what do we have going on? Like, wh- what's going on with you? I think it's extremely important. Yeah. Yeah, get somebody who is willing to call you on your bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Bullshit. And and somebody who exuberantly supports the things that you do, who gets excited about your successes and is also being amazing themselves. Like just find somebody who's willing to support you wholeheartedly and authentically that you return the favor for. If you don't mind me, if you don't mind me asking, where'd you meet her? Uh, where did we? So we actually first met. I was performing the wedding ceremony for mutual. Um, and she'd read, I guess, a couple of my books mm-hmm. and, uh, we were at like the, the lunch dinner thing afterwards and just struck up a conversation, but it took, so, so as much as like, I do stuff like on stage, I've like sung with metal bands. I've done all this stuff in these goth clubs and these kink clubs. If you're flirting with me, you have to pretty much grab a two by four <laughs> and smack me upside the head for me to realize <laughs> that that's what's going on. Like, oh, um, you like guess, me? Oh, okay. <laughs> right. And and I'm uh, the the old the old school word was was by, but like I'm anyway. Uh, so I I usually just assume you're not going to like me, whoever you are, because I'm probably <laughs> too weird for you. So I I just anyway. Long story short, she she started coming around. Um, there was a convention that we both went to, and uh, she asked. She's like, hey, could I? I've got a little bit of time. Is it okay if I come and hang out after the convention? And we hit it off really well and kind of connected over poetry. Um, and, and also like our very disparate backgrounds. So my, my wife, Lyria's grandmother is the Jewish scientist who discovered dark matter. Oh my God. Vera Rubin. Um, and and so Avira uh, was was dying um, as like we were courting, 
And so, like, there's this, there was a lot of, like, mutual support. Like, she's, yeah, so, 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 we met because we share a lot in terms of poetry and vision and mind and, yeah. You know, when, when two people are getting together and you have something, uh, something horrible happening, um, it's interesting because it kind of creates an environment like this maternal environment of, of two people who are willing to take care of one another. So that out yeah, of this out of this shitty situation, something like beautiful and positive comes out of it. Yeah, well, and it, it like we both saw that we were people who could trust and be trusted with both strength and vulnerability. I mean, um, I've I've one of the other reasons that like you have to clue by for me if, if you're flirting with me is like I've I've had relationships in the past, but like I do so many things um and like 30 plus books, some people find that very intimidating in a part. And I'm an obsessive worker when I'm working, um, which does not work for everybody. Um and Elira and I often just go off and do our own things and, and kind of joke about being introverts together. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I, it's almost. Uh, <laughs> I'm imagining this tower that you kind of go up the stairs up into up into the study to kind of slam on the typewriter, <laughs> you know. And then you know she's she's down on the lower levels working on on her stuff, and both of you are these kind of workhorses that come together and say, "Do you want to go out and go somewhere and hang out with some people? Nah, let's just stay in." <laughs> that that sounds about right. At about at this point, five thousand books to the living space and a couple of cats. And yes, that's pretty much our world. Good for you. I'm, I'm a bibliophile myself. Um, one of the things that you do um, outside of, of House Kepri is also your psychic development courses that you're offering online for personal, spiritual, and psychic development. Um, I believe you're offering classes and courses that are pre-recorded, I, I believe one-on-one -on -one sessions and group sessions on Patreon. Um, what can people expect from these kinds of classes and what's the kind of work that you're doing there? Oh, well, transitioning it to, to online has been um, a bit of a learning experience. So in 20, <coughs> excuse me, 2017, I think um, we'd bought a property called Inspiration House to teach classes at. Um, it's this, uh, it turns 150 years old this year and it's this little, brick farmhouse in Oberlin, Ohio, that is, by my estimation, quite haunted, but in like a positive sort of way, like, but it's incredibly active. So I, I bought it to be my psychic Hogwarts <laughs> so that people could come and spend like a, a weekend there That's cool. and do, uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one stuff. And like, I, I, I prefer salon style instruction where we like kind of sit in the round and I'll maybe lecture for 15, 20 minutes, but then mostly it's dialogue. Yeah. And and to me, like people get the most out of that. So switching that to being able to do it on online is a little tricky. So so what do I teach? Um a whole lot of stuff about how to judge your perceptions and, and how to pay attention to your perceptions. Um get ready to keep a journal um if you take any of the classes. And excuse me, one second. <coughs> <clears throat> um, 
there is as much psychology um, and cognitive behavioral therapy uh, in my classes as there is psychicism. Mm. Uh, you know, don't expect Sylvia Brown level readings of like all past uh, ancestors and whatever. Um, <laughs> I have, I exist somewhere in the crossroads between an academic, a skeptic, and an experiencer. And, and all of that comes to the table. Uh, so probably the most popular classes are always psychic self-defense, like how to how do I protect myself when I'm overwhelmed by stuff? How do I assess whether or not something's problematic? Um, and then the, the, the next most popular is just, am I psychic? How do I develop these abilities? What is psychic even? Uh, and it's I always leave at least 20, 30 minutes for for questions and no two lectures are the same because of the questions. Like people always take me down interesting avenues. <laughs> and it, it being conversational with a group too, I'm sure that there's probably interesting side paths and, and kind of side chat that happens outside of the, the kind of current subject at hand. People are interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I'm a very tangential presenter anyway. Uh, so, so yeah. And, and I, I love that dialogue. Like I'll, I'll learn as much from people's questions as, you know, I hope that they're learning from me. You know, that's one of the things just to use a segue here. That's one of the things that I really enjoy about running tabletop games is not the grab your gun or grab your knife or grab your sword and go into this cave and beat these bad guys up. But the, a group, a group of people sitting around and talking about the things that they're going to do, or more importantly, talking about like the nature of the game itself and the nature of their themselves in comparison to their character existing in this world. Um, with games like Mage, you could uh, those conversations delve into very, very interesting paths, and it it you kind of blur the line between talking about the game and talking about your own personal relationship with reality. Yes. Um, so, so that leads me to this question. Um, when was the last time that you played any tabletop game or, or Vampire the Masquerade? Oh, so let me see. We were trying. Okay. So, so we've scattered to the winds. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody who's pushing 50, uh, I and my regular gaming buddies have the regular problem of, Nobody has time to actually sit around the table anymore. Yeah. So, like, the last time anybody was in person around a table was probably a year and a half, maybe two years ago. So what we were trying to do was get comfortable with doing it online. And I was, I'd, I'd scripted up this Vampire the Masquerade uh, game where I thought uh, the idea would be to have and this this is going to sound terrible have a global pandemic that was bloodborne <laughs> uh -oh. um so that like all of this stuff had happened so you it was necessary for people to be talking over the internet yeah so that oh there was God. um and and like i scripted this whole thing out like i, I can send you screenshots um and we we started creating characters for it and did like the first little bit of it and then covid happened and you're like, what the <laughs> hell did I just open up? <laughs> right. Well, and, and I mean, I'm not the, like, this is 
<laughs> it, it's interesting because like Chuck Wendig's Wanderers, like there were a whole bunch yeah. of books that were like interestingly and eerily prescient um, in, in a way that we can delve into like the magic of creating and like, you know, are you tapping into the collective unconscious and, you know, what what even is going on? Um, probably the most famous is the fellow who basically wrote about the Titanic, only it was his fictional novel a couple of years before the whole Titanic thing happened. But anyway, so a little bit before COVID. <laughs> oh, wow. And then, to be fair, it was a little too close to home. So, no. <laughs> I, I've, I've had to... I've had to self-edit it, it just because I'm, I'm a, I'm very much a subject of my own environment. Um, and whatever is knocking around in my skull tends to kind of appear in some of the games that I'm writing. Um, so there's been a couple of, of trash drafts that I had to, you know, forget about and kill those darlings because it was like, Oh, well, I'm just going to talk about what I know or write about what I know. And right now what I know is that we're in a global pandemic and it's collapsing the economy. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So here, here's what I'm going to say to you, Michelle. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, and I would be honored if you would just consider, don't answer now, think about it, bake on it. Let me know what you think later. But if you ever, 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 ever want to join the, one of our tables, you are more mm -hmm. than welcome. And if you ever want to come on um, our Twitch stream, um, I know it's not like the table, but if you want to do a, a maybe a, a vampire one shot with us, sit, sit at the table as a player or even sit, sit at the table as a GM, you are more than welcome because you are a wonderful person. I would probably come in as a player because I have been a GM for so long that, you know, I, I love creating worlds yeah. and running them. But some days just being able to be a character is fantastic. You know, one of the other hosts of the Gehenna Gaming podcast, Ian, um, is a and one of the founders of of Gehenna Gaming, is a forever GM as well. So <laughs> I think some of us can really relate. Yeah, yeah. When 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 you're like you know the storyteller, especially like with the Providence game that that went on for so long, where I'm like, I I just want to play a character once. <laughs> you told me about, about all the NPCs. You you told me about that that Providence game on Twitter, and what's funny about it is that I'm actually in I'm a, as a player, uh, you know, our regular home game, um, which is now online, a Providence by Night. So I, I told them about it. They're like, "Holy shit, this is great!" Um, but yeah, as a as a GM, you kind of want to like play one character and let that one character bake and develop, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, w w I'm just gonna put that um, that invite is open until you hold on to it, cash it in whenever you want. Um, okay. But I, I do want to talk about one more thing. What do you have sure. going on? What's coming down the pike? What projects are you working on? And where can people find you? Okay, so the next big thing is the 10th anniversary edition of my Dictionary of Demons comes out on September 8th. Uh, and I haven't gotten my author copies yet, but it's hardback and just shy of 500 pages. So this is a tome that you could probably kill somebody with if you smacked them hard enough. Uh, and I'm really proud of like all of the work that went into it and, and especially like the amount of like world building that people have done with it. Uh, so there's that. Uh, I've been doing weirdly recreating um uh an incense blend from uh like 3000 years ago uh and and 
wow. that goes. Uh, so it's like a like an abermelon kind of incense. Uh, it's kapet or kifi. Um, the recipe is on the walls of the temple of Edfu. Um, there's versions of it. That farther back it, it started off as like kind of like a, a lark somebody mentioned something i started researching it and it turned into like this whole thing um and so now i just randomly do batches of this ancient incense and uh resell them and continue to do a whole bunch of research on just perfumery and stuff that is like a complete separation like like it's not what i usually do but like the hands-on stuff is fun um, totally i've been uh, I owe everybody the fourth book of the Shadow Side series because I left everyone on a cliffhanger. Um, but just trying to find the spoons to go back to that dark of a world has been kind of challenging. Um, so you know, mostly some short fiction in between. What else is going on? A lot of work on the Patreon, a lot of streaming, um, a lot of work with House Keperu. And... You might see me on, well, you'll see me on Portals to Hell um, if we get back to filming. Um, that's Jack Osborne's show. Uh, I had to turn down the most recent opportunity to be on his parents' show um, because I'm not going to set foot in a plane for a little while. That's um, on, um, is that History Channel or Travel Channel? I, uh, I think it's Travel. Travel yeah. Channel, yeah. Yeah, if you had told me even 10 years ago that I was going to be working with Ozzy Osbourne's son, I, I would have laughed in your face, but he's actually a really cool guy. So <laughs> I, I heard he's I heard he's wonderful. He's he's really freaking amazing. Um he's he is I don't so I didn't see the, the like the TV show where everybody got to see him grow up and like go through <laughs> everything. Yeah. But he has come out the other side of, you know, rehab and therapy and is just an incredibly thoughtful, gentle, compassionate human being. Um, who reminds me of Samwise. Interesting. Yeah, like like he's got the personality of Samwise. That's great. So, okay. So you, there is hopefully that will come back. Uh, and yeah. hopefully when it does come back, you'll, you'll be on it. So um, I think that this is a, I think this is a good place to, to end this podcast. I want to keep going. You're, you're fascinating to talk <laughs> to, but everybody that was Michelle Belanger. You can find them on their website, michellebelanger.com, uh, patreon.com slash haunted on Twitter. Uh, Seth and Akeem. Yep. Okay, uh, that's S E T H A N I K E E M. Uh, check out House Kiperu because it's very, very cool. Check out some of her writings if you've never read any of them because it is is very, very fascinating. Um, Michelle, thank you. This was wonderful, and and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. And yeah, because um, there's so much more we could have talked about. My favorite of the Goetics is Marbus, by the way, with Marcosius as a close second. Ah, oh, thank you, Michelle. Let's let's connect again, and let's uh, let's find a time to bring you on. I'm sure everybody enjoyed this conversation. I, I hope everybody checks you out. Um, I hope everybody follows you and supports you on Patreon. Um, but every all of you Gehenians, all you Gehenna Gaming podcast listeners, thank you so much. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Gehenna Gaming. My name is Mark. You can find me on Twitter at Marchosius with fives instead of s's. 
send me your spiciest meme and enjoy the darkness. Thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. Your attention has been noted. You can find us online at GehennaGaming.com, on Twitter at GehennaGaming, twitch.tv slash GehennaGaming, and patreon.com slash GehennaGaming.